Well, hey there, Shepard. Back so soon? Is that a worming drench in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? I know, you're back because I promised, and I'm about to deliver. Charis Bennett Walker is a force of nature. You are going to love this interview. Now, this was recorded before she was famous. She just spoke at Vogue Knitting Live two weeks ago, and she was so popular they've already asked her to come back. Can you believe it? You have the opportunity to glean all of her wisdom on farming and sheep and many other things, the world of fiber, climate change, politics, living abroad. The conversation went all over the place, and it's fantastic. I apologize in advance for the variable sound quality. It's been a while since I recorded a phone interview, and the app that I used was not so great about consistency of audio quality. So I had my work cut out for me in editing so that you could hear both sides of the conversation. In other words, you might want to do this on your car speakers or your laptop instead of in your ear holes. Grab a mug of tea and your favorite farmer's market produce, sit back, and enjoy the first half of our conversation with Charis Bennett Walker of Tar Heel Billy Farm. This is Ovinology. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Have you had rain? Monday, Yay! we got rain, Sunday, Monday. It's been so dry that it was immediately absorbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm happy, but gracious. It's not enough. Still. No, no, I think it'd take a hurricane before it was enough. But. It could rain till Thanksgiving, and, oh, and you know, we might get grass back. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> what else are you going to do, right? Yeah, nothing but cry and pray like we always do. Yep. I did a lot of crying. I stopped praying. <laughs> well, because I figured God knows we need rain, right? So I don't well, know yeah. we need rain. Right. So instead, I was just like, thanks that everybody is upright. Mm-hmm. And thanks that we're not on fire. <laughs> right. Thank you for the tomatoes that are still growing inexplicably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a plan out there. I'm, I'm praying for, for clarity. You know what I mean? Like, it's, okay, so I don't really know what I'm supposed to do sometimes, so I'm just, I'm praying for clarity and discernment. Just help me to figure out what I'm supposed to do. Cause I feel like... I don't always know what that is. I mean, who's who are better co-workers with the divine plan than farmers? And yet... I feel like people, like humans, are really, I mean, we're really messing with that plan. I agree with you. You know, you, you hate to throw out really hyperbolic language, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're running out of the, the low-hanging fruit vocabulary-wise. <laughs> yeah. you know, so we're, we're at scary times. I've talked to several shepherds. I know you've lost sheep, and we've talked about the challenging conditions for growing and raising not just livestock but produce and the more I see that everybody regardless of where they are in the world are having the same challenges I mean I know people that at least four different breeders that said you know what I'm not breeding this year because they had registered stock and I know a bunch of people who are bailing Mm mm-hmm what the long-term implications of some of these things we won't see you know, we're going from season to season and making decisions mm-hmm. independently from, you know, a couple of months out. But the ripple effects and the impacts, we, re- we really, we don't even know. We don't know how bad this is yet. And the seasons aren't even seasons anymore. Nope. I'm having I don't know. come in to rut in August, and I've got ewes that are staying in heat till March. Okay. I don't know how tunas are, but my sheep are seasonal breeders, and there's no mm-hmm. longer a season. Tunas can breed year-round, but if it's too hot, then they won't go in the season. So what you're seeing now is people having fertility issues, Mm -hmm. 
because it's too hot for their rams to think, hey, you know, biology says it's time. You know, people are having lambs in times that they don't want them to, mm-hmm. and tunas are losing that year-round breeding ability. So there are a lot of breeders that are just saying, heck with it, we're just going to put cedars in and bring our ewes into season. Well, how do we know whether or not they're really fertile or not if you're artificially bringing them in? So we're we're potentially playing with the fertility of the breed itself. Mm-hmm. And you won't be able to discern whether or not your your flock really has maintained that quality or or whether or not you're just artificially creating that situation. I'm not sure. I, I just see there being a lot of things going on with my breed in particular that are disturbing to some of us. They're getting bigger. There's this overemphasis on grain and stature. And the rest of us that are trying to maintain the hallmarks of the breed, their thrift and hardiness and fertility, you've got other people that are, I don't know, just taking the breed in a very different direction. And I don't know. I don't know what the long-term implications are for that because if you lose those more primitive and homestead qualities, then that doesn't necessarily bode well for the breed in the future. Right. I think with all of the changes, people will have no choice if they want to be profitable, or I don't know if any of us are profitable anymore. If they want to stay in the game at all, (laughs) breeders are going to be forced to go back to the traditional type because you can't afford to raise these big show types anymore. I agree. And if you look at what's happening on Australia, you've got a major pushback from shearers and industry people that are saying, hey, they're too big. We're not able to shear them. We're not able to handle them. The handling facilities are putting people in danger. Or, you know, it's becoming a huge issue when you magnify that those small problems out to a commercial size flock. You know, you might be able to deal with a 300-some pound animal if it's only one or two of them. But if you're talking about hundreds and thousands, you know, like, yeah. You know, that becomes a real problem. I actually went down to North Carolina and met with a breeder a couple of weeks ago, and she had a tunis that was so big. If I didn't know what it was, it bore very little resemblance to any of the other tunis I'd seen. Um, He was huge. He was huge. And I thought, "I I can't do anything with him on my farm. I, I have no birthing issues. I don't. I don't have any of those kinds of problems. But there's no way I could breed him to anything that I have on my farm and not create a catastrophe. Right. Um, <laughs> and not only that, all my you know my animals are grass fed. I'm not set up to deal with an animal this big mm-hmm. and feed it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If there, there's a place for those animals, but it's certainly not on my farm. I have some some of my original breeding stock that I sourced from a show flock, and I like their size. To me, they're still moderately flame. They're a little bit larger than some of the other original breeding stock that I have. But looking at their lambs, they're not growing to, into these monstrosities that, you know, they're ponies that I can ride. <laughs> they're still within breed standard. And I have some that I feel like are too small. I also sell meat, so I can't have tiny cat size sheep either right. you know they're too small they're also don't meet breed standards I'm, i think i'm breeding for a type mm-hmm. and i have i don't have my ideal sheep yet i'll know her when i see her and i'm getting closer but you know you, you look in your flock and you've got a couple that have qualities that you like in one way and qualities that you dislike in another but my flock is young enough that I still have a lot of room to go before I, I'm, I'm getting lambs. And I'm like, yep, that's it. That's it right there. I haven't gotten there yet. But it's funny. I keep talking to people that are looking for breeding stock, and they're looking for the same things I was looking for. They wanted sheep they could work. They want sheep that have great wool uh, that they can use themselves or that they can market and sell. So another one of the issues with show stock at least with Tunis, they're shown slick shorn. Mm-hmm. 
So you never have the opportunity if you're buying from a show stock to discuss wool because they never let it grow long enough for you to be able to evaluate it. And they're not using it, so they don't they don't know whether it's good or not. Nope. And they show from the time they're a couple of months old onwards, so you never even get to see the lamp fleece. Yeah, and tunas you, you share once a year, right? So you're not looking at Icelandic-type staple length or, you know, Wesleydale. You don't have the length anyway. So if they're shearing early, a couple of months, you're looking at, you know, maybe an inch, inch and a half. There's not a whole lot that entry-level folks can do with that. And I know that the Livestock Conservancy has worked to help promote it. I know there's several people uh, in the association that are trying to get folks to consider, at least, trying to market their fleece. But it really is an uphill battle, even within the association. It's not worth it to people. They're shearing them repeatedly during the growing season because they show so often. I just feel like you're leaving money on the table if you don't get fleece. Well, because you are. (laughs) 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 Because you are. Uh, You know, it's funny, after Kentucky Sheep Fiber, Mm -hmm. back in May, I was on the way out. I was done for the day, getting ready to go home, and had stopped to shop a little and overheard a lady talking to a proprietor, uh, asking him if he wanted to buy a couple of her fleeces. You know, you say the word fleece and my little ears perk up, mm-hmm. right? So he said, well, what kind are they? And she said, oh, they're tunas. And he said, oh, no, I'm not really interested. So she was walking away, and I said, well, how many do you have? And she said, oh, I have six or seven. And I said, I'm on my way out. She said, they're in the car. They were beautiful fleeces. But they were full of trash and hay and, you know, so I bought, I think I bought one. And it was a lamb fleece, beautiful fleece. And she only wanted 10 bucks for it. I had it processed into some roving. And it was beautiful. But you've got people that have nice fibers. They just, they don't know what to do with it. You know, a couple of changes in their management. And she could have had marketable fleeces that could have made her money and she wouldn't have had to pedal them out of the back of her car. <laughs> but it, it takes a bit of outreach and it takes a bit of, hey, let me learn about this. And I'm not entirely sure people really know where to turn sometimes. So do you feel like it's worth throwing money at a bad fleece one year to encourage them to make more of an effort? A lot of people will look at a fleece like that and say, well, if they're not going to put in the work, then I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pay for this if, if they gave it to me or whatever. But like you said, I think there's a lot of education needed and sometimes giving them that little boost of, yes, your stuff is worth putting some time into. Mm-hmm. Here's how you could do it better next year. Absolutely. I think for me, that $10 was, you know, bad food at McDonald's, you know, or several <laughs> cups of coffee pretty sure I gave her my card and I told her, hey, you know, I would be willing to buy your fleeces from you. Next year, we can stay in the contact so that you can talk to people and try to help them become better producers. Because on the flip side, if she doesn't sell any, then they just get composted. They were very nice fleeces. I just had already sent off my clip to the mill already. Mm -hmm. And... I'll process a few fleeces, but I really don't have the patience (laughs) to do, you know, six or seven. I just, I don't. And I don't have time. But I think for those of us that are interested in fiber, even partnering with other farmers, when in our breeder, outside, or locally, or whatever, and said, hey, I can help you make money on this. And if that's not something that you're interested in doing, maybe we can partner together. I mean, there's other ways for producers to make at least some money on this product. That may take building some relationships. That may take a little bit of education. I'm surprised at how many people within my little county have fiber animals that they don't know what to do with it. They have no idea. Potentially that fiber that they're just composting could be paying their feed bill for those. Mm-hmm. And in one case, he got them from a person that was a fiber enthusiast. So he knew that he had high-quality fleeces, potentially, but he was absolutely clueless on how to take that theory and put it into practice. 
So it doesn't do you any good to have a $100 fleece walking around, but it's covered in burrs and it has wool break because you don't really know how to manage them. How long have you been in sheep? Three years. Man, and you talk like somebody who's been in it for 10, 15. <laughs> yeah, this is this is my third year. I got my first two ewes in 2016, fall of 2016, Aww. from a farm in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So what exactly was Charis's origin story? Did she want sheep first? Did she start knitting? The knitting came first. Okay. So I was a teacher at that time in my life, and uh, a parent of a really cool kid I was teaching at the time came to pick her son up from school. Now, if you get to know Charis at all, you'll find out that she's had a lot of lives within her lifetime. She's been a welder, a teacher, but even though she's been a teacher, she's super willing to learn. I first met Charis when she contacted me through Facebook about volunteering at my shearing day. I was super excited to have the help, but I was completely blown away when I found out she was driving almost three hours one way to come help me for the day. So it's no surprise that when Charis noticed this woman knitting her own socks, something she had never even considered that people still did, she had to learn how to do that for herself. So go over to Jennifer's house. And I sit down, and she showed me how to knit socks. I had no idea that that wasn't what you were supposed to learn how to knit first, right? Like double-pointed needles and all that. I didn't know. And so I promptly knit this really ill-fitting pair of socks from some wool acrylic blend. But that was enough to get me addicted to knitting. It was just a cool thing for me to do. A couple years later, I was married had a young child and saw this ad in the local paper. Hey, there's going to be a, a fiber festival. I'm like, what? That's a thing? <laughs> so I get in my car, drive about an hour and a half to Raleigh and went to the fiber festival. So I'm wandering around in this sensory overload and happened upon this lady and she was super nice. She says, oh, well, you know, you, you should come to my farm. You know, there's ladies, and we hang out, and we eat, and we spin, and we... She raised border lesters, by the way, okay. Carolyn. And I said, oh, okay. So I get in my car a couple of weeks later and drive to her farm. I'd never seen a sheep before <laughs> then, never in real life. And I get out of my car, and she has these beautiful border lesters. And I thought, oh, my gosh, <laughs> people do this in real life. And we became friends. We're still friends now. That was the seed that was planted for me that I'm going to I'm gonna have sheep. I'm going to do that. And at that time, I raised milk goats and still do. Not, you know, commercially or anything. Just had a couple for my own personal use. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, when we move, after my husband retires from the military, we're going to move to a farm and start farming. I thought, I'm going to start a sheep dairy. So I already knew about milking. I already made cheese. Mm-hmm. So that's what I thought I was going to do took a couple of classes in cheese making and paid my friend Carolyn to, you know, talk sheep business with me. And after crunching the numbers, pretty quickly realized that I was not willing to commit to that level of financial uncertainty. Yeah. I just couldn't make the numbers work. Even if we owned the land, the amount of infrastructure that we'd have to put in before we even tried to sell cheese in a fairly economically depressed part of the country, I thought that's that's just not going to work for me. I'm glad you brought that up. So mm-hmm. did you know at that point that you were going to move to the Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky corner? We knew that we were going to move, but we weren't 100% sure where. Okay. But we also knew that the cost of land in most places that we had either lived or wanted to live were cost prohibitive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that being said, every place where you can afford more than 20, 30 acres, (laughs) that pretty much leaves you places like Arkansas or Kentucky. So you you really, 
about dairy infrastructure because that's something that comes up a lot with people Uh on the outside of the industry is, well, you know, can't you milk them? Especially Icelandics. They're tri-purpose. Right, right. And I'm going to do this and that. So can you speak a little bit more about why we don't have dairies? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. So dairying itself is the most regulated agricultural endeavor a person can decide to enter into. You're lucky if you can take over a farm that has dairy infrastructure on it already, i.e. the milk facilities, milk parlor. And if you're talking about milking on the same farm that you're making cheese on, those are regulated by two different governmental bodies. And then you get into the, okay, what well, I, I might have the pasture for the animals, well, where are you going to milk them? Do you have a barn? How's it wired? Do you have three-phase? Do you have cement? Are your walls food grade? I mean, it's it's crazy. The I'm going to say it. It's barn? crazy. Yes, where the milk is. Oh, okay. So the milking parlor, okay. they, it has to be a special kind of polymer that so that you can wash all of the well, so in most people's barns, you're happy if it doesn't smell like a barn. <laughs> if you are milking, your barn pretty much has to be where you're milking. Where they live is a different issue. But where you're milking has to be as clean as a, let's say, a commercial kitchen. And there are laws about how high off the ground the electrical sockets have to be, what type of sockets they have to be, how far away from the water source there has to be a septic, that, you know, bathrooms, hand-washing facilities, all of these things, are, you're basically creating a food-grade commercial kitchen with milk in it. Right. So stainless steel, the whole bit has to be there. So you have county permits, state permits, because all of those things have to be overseen by your food agency, so Ohio Department of Food Safety, whatever, Kentucky Department of whoever does that in Kentucky, (laughs) and then there are federal guidelines for such things before you are permitted. So, (laughs) And I know in Kentucky, we have 120 counties, and Mm -hmm. this is a petty state where people like to throw their name and their weight around. Oh, yeah. Very much of it, but once they get it, they're not going to let it go. Quite often, someone will meet the state and federal regulations Mm -hmm. on a county level. If you don't treat that person just the right way and scratch Mm -hmm. their back, they're going to keep holding up your checklist and costing you more and more money until they put you out of business. Right. Like, oh, you didn't get the milk handling license to go from your house to your cheese cave? That's a county thing. I mean, really, when you said petty... And when you said county people who have a tremendous and disproportionate amount of authority over what people are able to do and not, that is very true. And I've not had, knock on wood, Lord, I really haven't had a whole lot of dealings with my county people because I'm not doing anything at this point to really cause a whole bunch of ire. Mm -hmm. But when you start certain types of industry or certain types of businesses, then you have, I mean, you have to. It's not a matter of, well, I can kind of skirt around that because I'm little or there's an exemption because we don't do X, Y, or Z. No, when you're talking about certain things, it's a given or you just can't. For, for people who are considering, oh, I'm just going to do a little bit, that you can't make money on a little bit. Early in that process, kicking around the milking process, I met with a cheesemaker in Durham in Rougemont, North Carolina, award-winning now, but they were just getting started with their goat dairy, and she had been an attorney. Her husband was a contractor, and they took over their family land, but they threw every nickel of their retirement, of their assets, everything to make this farm work and make incredible cheese. But I spent a day at their farm really getting into the down and dirty of running a dairy And what people don't consider, milk is seasonal. How are you going to secure enough raw material to go broke and lose everything that you have? 
I think people have this idyllic image of being a milkmaid. I've got the one alpine doe, and there's something mm-hmm. beautiful about just resting my head on her side and her mm-hmm. chewing away as I'm hand milking. And that's a beautiful image. But again, to be viable, financially viable, you're right. already at a point where you can't possibly spend time hand milking. So then there's added infrastructure just getting right. equipment. And then you hear people say, well, oh, well, I'll just have a herd share. <laughs> okay. Well, who are you selling that to? I mean, you still have to have clean facility. You know, nobody's going to come out to your farm, and just because you don't want to go and become a grade A raw milk dairy, they're still not going to buy it out of your barn. There's still a certain level of food handling and safety measures that have to be developed, regardless of whatever level you're going to participate in the milking system. And I'm not anti-herd share, but I am anti, we're just going to do anything and sell it to people. I think that that's dangerous. It's dangerous for consumers. And I think that people should really be willing to say no to things that they're not willing to put the time, effort, money, and energy into. So just because I could sell milk, I'm never going to do a herd share. That's not of interest to me. I think that goes back to that forethought, though, that most people don't give, which is, I'm sure that you've seen it and maybe even experienced it when you're at the farmer's market or the fiber festival where it's a bad day and you've spent the money for your booth fee and it's getting toward the afternoon and nothing's selling and how are Uh you going to recoup that loss? And there's a sense of desperation at all times when you're a farmer how are we going to pay for hay? How are we going to pay for infrastructure? How are we going to make the taxes this year? This has to pay for itself. So I think a lot of people do just kind of throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Uh So when somebody says, hey, would you be willing to do a herd share instead of going, well, what's that going to be? They go, oh, Uh somebody wants to pay me money for something. I'm going to do that. I I agree. But you know, it's funny you mentioned that yesterday. I had a profound insight. Well, I guess it was born of a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday's conversation was, whatever you have, there's always somebody that's going to ask you why you don't have (laughs) something else. (laughs) And, you know, it's true. I don't care if you weave the most beautiful shawls, right? Somebody's going to say, but you know what? Why don't you you weave rugs? you're raising produce or whatever, you have the most beautiful produce and you never raise brassicas because you can't because it's too hot or whatever, somebody's going to say, you know what, but I was looking for broccoli today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you can have everything, you know, everything else under the sun. And there's always that one thing that you don't have. So some of us are like, well, you know what, but John's got it. Or, you know what, Jane raises amazing brassicas. You you should go talk to Jane. Mm -hmm. But then there are others of us in that, you know, moment of, I've got to make it, you know what I mean? Like, I've got I've got fence I need to buy, I've got a new ram I need to get, whatever. Plants that seed, like, on it, if I just had the freaking broccoli, yeah. then everything would be okay. Yeah. I mean, A, that's that's dangerous, because you're, you're always going to be chasing right. last year's whatever it was. It always changes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're guided by some big principle or some goal, at least you're headed somewhere. At least for me, that makes it less likely that I get off track because I don't have time to. That doesn't mean I might not, you know, sit down with a piece of paper like, well, could I do that? Or how many people don't supply that need? Maybe that is something that I could do if I can make the numbers work. But nine times out of 10, that doesn't work for me. It's not worth it to me to get off track. I have to stay true to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. or else I'm going to flounder. My mother always said, a quick nickel is better than a slow dime. That's true to a point, but you can also get nickel and dime to death by yeah. chasing this other ancillary stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with your primary goal. You're so smart. I have moments. <laughs> All right, so you decided you were going to raise sheep. Yeah. Did you think it was just going to be for you, like just a spinner's flock? Or were you like, yeah, I'm going to go whole hog on this and wool is going to be my bread? You know, almost neither. I knew I was going to keep sheep, but I had no idea what kind and to what end. Like I said, initially I thought I was going to do dairy. So 
I was kind of leaning toward dairy-esque cheap. Mm-hmm. And I would just buy yarn. I still was not at the point where I knew anything about spinning or... <laughs> I was actually flipping through a book about breeds of livestock. And I saw a Tunis. And I thought, there's sheep with red faces. That's the sheep. You know, sometimes you have those moments where, like, the clouds open. I'm like, oh, you know, that was it. The first time I saw a Tunis in a book, I knew that that was the breed that I was going to have. It was just that simple. And it was another three years before I bought one. And the two that I bought from that farm in Pennsylvania were the first two I'd ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Drove about five hours from our house and bought sheep. Honestly and truly, are you aware how remarkable you are? Because no, but just sort of falls into this, and they don't know what they're doing, and then they get a couple, and maybe they switch breeds, and this and that. You did everything right. You did everything in the right order. I mean, honestly, you are so open to information and willing to seek it out and engage and do whatever it takes and that is so rare most people are just like oh five hours that's too far to go for a sheep (laughs) i mean (laughs) and to hold off for three years well a we weren't set up and b okay so my father-in-law raised purebred limousine cattle for many 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 years and unfortunately, he decided to disperse his herd because he had a health issue in his herd. And that came at a time right before we moved that he found out that he had that issue. And I you know, remember standing out there taking blood samples and sending them off to Kentucky and working with state vets to kind of find out, well, what can he do and all these things. And out of that experience, I thought, you know what? It takes just as much energy and time to raise an animal and feed an animal that's healthy as it does to raise an animal that's not, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't look at them and tell if they have OPP. If you don't want to run the risk of potentially bringing in something that could destroy your entire investment, right? Because some stuff you can't, you can't unring some bells, what is this issue? And oh my gosh, my animals are dying. And yeah, it, I just start with somebody else's problems. Exactly. And part of that was, well, what kind of issues do sheep have? I mean, they're similar enough to goats, but they're not goats. Right. And anybody that says that they are don't have sheep. Yeah. But that was an education for me. And I know that you've had an experience where you've had to deal with your vet regarding your, your dog. And I wanted to chime in on that. Vets are worth their weight in gold. I know a whole lot of people that refuse to spend money on veterinary care. Oh, I'm just going to Google it. Oh, I've got this vet book, and I'm just going to go out and do blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm all about, you know, hands-on shepherding. Don't get me wrong. But I also know when I've, I'm at the end of my comfort zone or knowledge base, and I need to call a vet in. Yep. And I'm not going to quibble about what you are going to charge me, whatever. It is worth it to me to have a good vet on board, yep. at least to consult with. And when I have a good vet around me, I ask him or her every question that I wanted to know in the last five years. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm getting my money's worth. Right. <laughs> you know? That's a relationship. That it, like you said, it's there when you need it. And Mm -hmm. if you're confident with your skill set, there are times when they can't come out. Right. I had a regularly scheduled exam, uh, health papers for the show sheet this year, having to put it off for, I think, four or five days Mm because there was an emergency. I understand Mm -hmm. that. And I know that next time I might be, God forbid, I might be the producer that has the emergency and holds the vet Mm -hmm. up for six hours for somebody else. But thank mm-hmm. God that there are so, there's somebody out there willing and able to come and do that for me when I can't mm-hmm. do it for myself. It's bizarre to me that people would be willing to pay the money for an animal, but not be willing to grow as a shepherd, and then not be willing to pay somebody for their knowledge. That doesn't make sense to me. We lost a ram in the drought this year, and he'd been sick for a year. And mm-hmm. I kept calling the vet and saying, well, should we put him down? 
<laughs> and every time he'd be like, well, if he's made it through the last three days, he's probably going to be all right. <laughs> I was like, are you sure you don't want to come put him down? Hung on for a year. And I felt terrible when he eventually did die. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I was like, well, nobody can come at me and say, well, why didn't you have the vet out? The vet was fully in the know about this animal. Right. And there's some instances, Madeline, when they just daggone don't know. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the other thing I, I did not fully appreciate about having animals or having kids either. <laughs> there's sometimes the doctor doesn't daggone know. I think, especially in our society now, where there are so many answers available to us so quickly, mm-hmm. it can be very frustrating as a shepherd or as a producer of any kind to see an animal have a, an issue and you really, truly don't know what's going on with it. So going forward, and I think our conversation is all over the place, but going forward, keeping data to help other commercial flocks, because I think that Tunis provide an excellent opportunity for commercial breeders to improve their hybrid vigor. But you have to have data for that, right? You can't just say, they're great and they're moderate frames and the meat's tasty. You should buy them. You kind of need stuff like birth weight, weaning weight, 90-day weight, carcass weight, mm-hmm. slaughter percentage, numbers, because there are people that are data-driven. They don't make emotional decisions like some of us. <laughs> they look at numbers. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't know. I don't know anything about that. I'm not sentimental at all. <laughs> and how big is your flock now? 20 now. 16 ewes and however many rams that leaves. Did you uh, intend to do meat as well as the fiber when you started? No, see, you would think so. I don't know what I thought. I think I was more at the accumulation and help preserve the breed. I didn't have this weird hoarder sheep notion where I would keep everybody. <laughs> but I really didn't have a plan for marketing and selling meat. I didn't think that that would be a major component of what I did. Mm-hmm. Tunis are the architects. They're supposed to be super tasty as far as lamb goes. But I, I didn't grow up eating lamb. I've had lamb several times, especially when I've been abroad. Lamb is just so much more available in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that we were going to eat some. But I didn't think a whole lot about, well, how am I going to market it? And who's going to eat it? How many do I want to market? I didn't I didn't really think about that a whole lot. I think I thought in my mind, I'm going to have some sheep, and then I'm going to sell the other ones to people who want them. That's as far in my mind as I got. I didn't think, well, how am I going to price them? How am I going to distinguish my flock from other flocks? I think I was focused on my breeding goals and not really focused on the rest of the world and how they were going to be received. Mm-hmm. I probably should have put a little more thought in that, but I think I was thinking more like a consumer as opposed to thinking from the business standpoint. I'd spend time on websites like Eat Wild and Local Harvest just to see what other people were doing, but I didn't think, like, well, where am I going to get it processed? And what kind of cuts do people buy? And where am I going to sell it? I didn't think about any of that stuff until I actually started butchering them and thought, oh, I don't want to eat all the lambs. I mean, <laughs> lamb's tasty. Other people need to be eating this too yeah. so we can grow that aspect. And some of it, to me, is promoting the breed in a different way. Everybody doesn't want wool. Everybody in the world doesn't knit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe everybody in my world does, but everybody in the greater world doesn't, but everybody eats. don't even know what it is. Some people, oh my gosh, I don't know right? I, them, but... I don't either. I like what you're crocheting. I'm not crocheting. I have pictures of my sheep everywhere I go, right? Mm-hmm. And I get the, your goats are just really cool looking. Oh. They're not goats. Thank you, though. They're cool sheep. This, okay. So 80% of Americans live in an urban environment, yes. and only 4% of Americans are actively engaged in agriculture. So uh-huh. you're welcome, 96% that were... <laughs> um, 
and clothing you and all of that. It's gotten so bad that I was at a 4-H thing this past week. There were 240 school children and their teachers and a bunch of different, like 15 different agriculture stations. All of us station people were eating lunch together. And this lady said that at the state fair this year, she was standing in the dairy barn. There was a family gathered around a Holstein. Somebody asked what kind of animal it was, and the response was, oh, it's a beaver. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. In the dairy barn. Uh-huh. That's really tragic. That's not funny. You get milk from beavers, and more than one person I know who raises alpacas has been asked how many eggs they lay. You're not. I'm. I am not. How is that even? How is that even possible? I mean, (sighs) because milk comes from the back of the grocery store. I mean, I get it because I have taught in urban environments where the kids, for example. They don't know peaches grow in trees what? because all the peaches they've ever gotten come in a can. So they don't recognize the unprocessed version of stuff. I remember taking a group of second graders on a field trip to a farm, and I had a very troubled young boy that I loved very much. Of course, he had to be with me holding my hand the whole time. Oh. So we pull up to this farm, and he looks at me, and he says, Miss Walker, what's that? And I said, honey, that's a goat. And he said, well, what's wrong with his feet? And I said, well, what do you mean? Sometimes you try to be flippant to provoke a response. But I genuinely, truly did not understand what he was asking. So I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, it ain't got no toes. What's (laughs) wrong with his feet? And I said, oh, baby, those those are hooves. And he looked at me, and he's like, well, what's a hoof? He had no clue. So I'm like, you know, like pigs, they don't have toes, right? Like in horses, they don't wear shoes. I mean, they do wear shoes. That's a bad example. But anyway, they don't wear the same type of shoes you have, right? So every animal doesn't have feet like people have feet. And he said, well, but how do they walk? I mean, he was true. He went through the whole thing. You could see his little wheels turning. He truly could not process that there was another way that animals transported themselves to ignorance and I I use that term in the dictionary Mm -hmm. sense of the term ignorance is profound Mm -hmm. at every possible level and that's not just oh these urban kids don't know no it's not a socioeconomic thing. I know plenty of people with college degrees that are supposedly educated, mm-hmm. highly educated, that have no functional clue about food production, how to cook it, where it comes from, how it grows. Oh, yeah. I it's had a woman come out to the farm and didn't know where potatoes came from. She didn't know yeah. they grew in the ground. Nope. Seriously? What do you think you wash off them before you Mm -mm. cook them? Like, what? that's dirt. No, but they're just so clean. Carrots, same way. What do you mean carrots grow on the ground? Yeah. I can't remember because my grandma gardened and we always had a garden. I can't remember a time I didn't know where food came from. I always knew, granted, growing up in rural North Carolina, there's a whole lot of stuff that I did not eat until I became an adult. Eggplant, for example, you know, we just didn't grow that. So, you, you know, but at least you had a daggone clue. If I haven't grown it before, I don't know. I didn't know what a tomatillo looked like. I yep. Didn't, I didn't know. Like, is it ready to pick? I don't know. Mm-mm. Part of that's just, you know, regional. Yeah. You don't know what stuff is because that's not in your regional experience of growing or raising. Right. Right. So you, there's a whole plethora of stuff. Okra, for example. My yeah. in-laws are in their 60s. They had never grown okra before. Yeah. So they grew it this year. It's like magic. Like, look how it's growing. Look at what it's doing. But unless you live in the South or live in a place where that's common, you don't know. Climate change is expanding people's horizons. Oh, my gosh. Part of it is is propagation. People Mm -hmm. are always trying to get different varieties that will grow in a different climate and things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, for, for people this far north, 
okra, you know, isn't going to make it. <laughs> no, or hasn't until this have, year. Yeah, now we have these enormous growing seasons. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to our people in ignorance, I know that there's been a lot of discussion about vegans and meat eaters and these just wildly misleading attacks to me mm-hmm. on livestock producers in the last couple of years, but it seems to have gotten a lot more voracious in the last year or so. But the thing that is most distressing to me about that is that people do not understand how closely livestock and how integral they are into the production of food. So you can't be a vegan and love soybeans without either loving petroleum or loving chicken because that fertilizer has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with you being vegan. I'm fine with you being vegetarian. Do you? You know, we live in a place in the world where we have the luxury of having such choices. But I think that people are not, when they're living in denial, if you think that buying that rayon clothing is a better, more sustainable choice, then we won't even go into the why do you have to kill the sheep to get the wool <laughs> inanity. We won't go I into that. Really is that just that we could afford to stay in business <clears throat> if we killed every sheep every year for the wool. Yes. Yes, because we're terrible people. You have to go Where back to that we're terrible people. I don't know. We don't think about that either. Okay then. But we also have to kill all of the cows to get the milk and the oh it's staggering it's just it's staggering but you can't have rational conversations with people if it conflicts with what they want to believe it doesn't matter if it's true or not no honestly i think it's it's what's easiest i think that's true or what inundates them the most right the message that is the loudest is the the first thing they grab onto and then Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you think about religious intolerance, too. Right. There's no, we can both be right. You know, there aren't Mm -hmm. gray areas. Mm -hmm. It's, if you're right, that makes me wrong, and I can't be wrong. Right. Someone said we live in a post-truth society. And I think that's true, but I think it's more insidious than that. We live in a society where everybody can be right. Everything can be true at the same time. I took physics in high school, right? (laughs) (laughs) We're incapable of nuance yes. at this point. Yeah. We just, we can't handle it. The only adults in the room are the people who can make concessions. Yeah. Everybody else is just being kids and pointing and acting crazy. Although in quantum theoretical physics, two things can potentially occupy the same space at the same time in different dimensions. So maybe we're living in quantum truth. You know what? But you go back to what I just said. We are in, we can't. We can't get to subtleties of quantum mechanics (laughs) or quantum physics. We can't see subtlety. We can only do A, B, and C. We can't do like 1A and 1B. Like we can't get there. We can't break it down any farther. We're still arguing about the macro. Can't get to the micro. (laughs) I think that's part of the problem that farmers have in defending themselves is Mm -hmm. everything we do is both macro and micro. I think we're unique Mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, Uh as a profession because we have to deal with long-term planning and overarching you know what is good for the land and what is good Uh where are we financially and what is good for the flock and what is you know and at the same time micro of this sheep and this fleece and this Uh plant and this soil and this season (laughs) or even just today right and so when we're assaulted with this argument of of lunacy really we don't know how to respond and the thing is sometimes there are kernels of truth in the lunacy but the people who are talking about it are not framing it in a way that's helpful none of it really makes any discernible impact so you've got a lot of finger pointing. Oh, we've got to cut down greenhouse gases to get rid of all your cows. And we need to eat plants. Okay, well, how are we harvesting those? Has anybody come up with a solar tractor? Can I buy a solar tractor? For me, as a farmer, 
talking to my mom, you know, and she's saying, you know, we've, we've got these kids. The kids are the ones driving the conversation. I'm like, yeah, but they're urban kids, Mom. Let's say the kids win. Let's say that we just ban all fossil fuels today. Changes in our vision for energy are going to impact our food system. Right. I have not heard anybody have that conversation at all. There was a gubernatorial candidate last year who was asked if there's a food shortage or something happens, what's your plan? What do we do? And his legitimate answer was, well, we just go to the grocery store and get more. (laughs) I've got some novels he could read. (laughs) I'm going to spoil it for you. It's not that nice and tidy. (laughs) But that's, that's the world we're living in, that a grown adult doesn't understand... That it has to come from somewhere. No, it doesn't. It comes from Walmart. Right. I I dare you to tell me differently. Well, this spring it started to happen. (laughs) We had the floods. You know, I'm the Uh voice of doom and reason trying to explain to everybody, you better go buy your corn because there's not going to be any. You better go stock up on, you know, X, Y, and Z because it's going to be hard to get. Well, Why? Because it can't get the crops in the ground. If you can't plant, you can't harvest. And if you can't harvest, you don't have any cans of food. Sure enough, Kroger shelves started to empty out. Uh And I'm seeing all these signs about due to lack of supply, we can't get Uh into, you know, they were moving stuff around. They had a whole wall of broccoli in the fresh food because they couldn't fill it with the regular produce selections. And it went on for over a month, and I just thought, mm-hmm. he, it, now it begins. But that puts you over in the conspiracy land. Yeah, exactly. I don't understand how you don't understand. The, well, but that's in Nebraska. <laughs> but who do you think feeds us? What I kind of noticed was that this was the first time it impacted everybody. Because I don't know about you, but I've been noticing these things for years in terms of, uh-huh. oh, there were horrible fires and floods last uh-huh. year out uh-huh. west. Well, it's going to make it harder to get hay. Uh-huh. Because when there's a disaster, they make more money shipping hay to uh-huh. the people who can't get any than they do right. selling it to the people here who can get some. Uh-huh. What does that mean for us? Put up more because we don't know what kind of winter we're going to have. And if it's late, uh-huh. like it has been the last couple of years, we're going to get hosed because there won't be more hay to buy. Well, that uh-huh. doesn't affect anybody but a farmer. But not having uh-huh. peas on the shelf at Kroger, that affects everybody. Right. There's no food and it's not coming back. Uh-uh. <laughs> I don't think there is a way because it is alarming. And, you know, right. I mean, it's not like you're the weird rogue person now. Everybody's talking about it. It is very clean, and it's just sad that nobody wanted to listen until now. So you feel like sometimes every situation there's a mic drop moment where you're just really not sure, okay, so now what are we supposed to do with that? Well, what we're going to do with that right now is sit on it. Just fold it up, tuck it in our back pockets, and go about our shepherding. You'll get to hear the second half of this conversation next week. But in the meantime, subscribe to the Patreon and listen to some very special bonus content. Something you're not going to want to miss. Thanks for listening. And until next week, make the world a better place with sheep.